Hello everybody, welcome to today's episode of the Money Mitch Effect. It's championship season, cup season, NBA final season, you name it, we got it. Basketball and hockey preview on today's show. First up, it's Brad for Bruns, a St. Louis radio vet from the Gateway City. He reps the arch every day, all day, and we're going to talk about the NBA finals. It's Cavs Warriors Part 3. We'll break down all the matchups, LeBron versus Durant, Curry versus Kyrie, Love, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, which bench players you can touch. We'll do a deep dive into the finals before making a prediction of the third installment of the greatest rivalry in the NBA today. And then I'm going to talk to Eric Roberts from the Hockey Writers and Fox Sports Radio. We're going to discuss the NHL Stanley Cup Final. One game in, the Predators lose to the Penguins in a doozy of a game. 5-3, the Penguins are up 1-0. Game 2 is tonight. We're going to discuss that. Break down the matchups, what the Predators can do to bounce back. If the Pittsburgh Penguins will be the first team to repeat since 1997 and 98. Here it is now. Money Mitch Effect. Let's go. All right, it's that time. We finally made it, the journey to the NBA Finals. Yeah, definitely flew right by. Uh, and with that, we're going to bring on to the show back again, Bradford Bruns. Bradford, we're ready to talk Cavs-Warriors, a series that has finally arrived, the trilogy, the third edition. Thanks for joining the show. Mitch, it's always a pleasure, buddy. And I'll tell you what, I've been brushing up on the great, iconic part threes throughout history in preparation for this bad boy. Surprisingly, though, some of the trilogy cappers, they don't really hold up so much to the test of time. You think about Creed and Balboa for allocating through the sand. The left said about that, the better. The Ewoks, they almost ruined Return of the Jedi. But these are two real galactic forces. I can't wait for it to get started. We've had this extended prelude throughout the regular season. The inevitable has arrived. I think back to the Christmas Day meeting, which was so great. Obviously, the last two matchups, final style, the last two June. So the sooner Thursday evening at 8 o'clock can get here, the better. In fact, hey, you know what? Do it Super Bowl style. Let's have pregame rolling at 8 a.m. and just rolling all the way through up until tip-off. <laughs> I'm so glad you didn't mention Godfather Part 3. That that means a lot that you didn't bring that up in the uh, trilogy talk. <laughs> I tried to spare Pacino some dignity. You know, that's what I do. Yeah. Uh, well, I do have to say one thing. Now, we, we knew that the finals weren't going to start until, you know, June 1st. We're recording this on a Wednesday. This is we're actually going to put this show up today, so we're going to, you know, do a quick turnaround here for the finals. But, you know, June 1st oh, yeah. is the start, and last week we knew as both these teams were wrapping up the series that it would not start until, you know, a week away. Did you think, and, and I guess this is where we'll get the ball rolling, but it seemed to me at least like both these teams were playing with a sense of urgency, like let's get done with these conference finals so we can get some rest and prepare for the final showdown. Is, is that what you thought as well? Oh, I totally and utterly agree. Say what you will about the fact that Kawhi Leonard goes down in game one of the Western Conference Finals, making the road much easier, considerably easier for Golden State. But the Warriors, Mitch, we talked about it a few weeks ago. They had played with such a sense of urgency throughout the preliminary stages of the postseason that Kawhi or not, I didn't think that San Antonio stood any chance whatsoever of being able to extend that series. Maybe a game, probably not two, but the Warriors dispatching them in force straight it seemed right that's been par for the course for them 
down the stretch run this particular season. And the Cavs, with just that temporary stumbling block there in Game 3, and I don't want to put too much of it on LeBron's would-be illness, the one that he didn't reference, but that which Richard Jefferson did. Let's just be honest. Cleveland was entirely flat in that contest. Came back in Game 4, specifically the second half of Game 4, and thanks to that eruption from Kyrie Irving, shades of the San Antonio game from a few years prior, was able to steady the course right the course once more and then carry that into game five there was a certain vicious quality Mitch to a lot of those victories that I think Cavs fans have long been hoping for down the stretch in the regular season when you had that topsy-turvy stretch of games in April even in May I would say basically venturing into the initial stages of the postseason that hunger that sheer desire wasn't there on a nightly basis with just a couple of exceptions, we definitely saw that as the Cavs cut a swath through the entirety of the East. So, yeah, they didn't want to mess around. They wanted to get as much rest as possible because despite the fact that this finals is probably going to extend into the later portion of June, hey, you want to have everybody, all of your proverbial forces, as fresh as possible because they're going to be logging high-intensity minutes like crazy. Yeah, it's you know I thought for the Cavs there was about a game and a half where they weren't quite there and you could say the same thing for the Warriors that first half of game one but take those outliers out and they've been gearing up for this matchup they've been gearing up to get rest and you know I think it's interesting too because as we look ahead at this series the third time they're meeting definitely some new pieces on the Golden State side and, and Cleveland tweaking their roster yep. as well I don't know how deep each of these teams are going to be able to go into their bench to play at that high level basketball needed to win a championship we could very well see Bradford to seven eight-man rotations for both teams throughout this series. I really concur because when you talk about X factors in this particular instant, Mitch, most of those individuals are going to still come, in my estimation, from the, the starting five, whether you're talking about a Clay Thompson or maybe even if you do categorize Kevin Love or Tristan Thompson still as such. When you think about the various bench components right now, yeah, both of these teams, they obviously are operating at highly efficient rates. But for Golden State, let's just say that Golden State, once again, opts to go small for a large, large share of the final tier. Zaza Pachulia, he doesn't get a ton of minutes. They're going small. Andre Iguodala is back out there for Cleveland. Similarly, can you really afford to play a Kyle Korver for about 20 minutes a night, as has been the case throughout this postseason? Judging by the results in that blowout loss that Cleveland suffered to Golden State in January, I would say not, because there are different ways that the Warriors certainly can exploit an individual like that, someone who doesn't have the requisite defensive capabilities. And, you know, similarly, on the other side, too, for Golden State, I think there are some definite questions when you're talking about those beyond the starting five, beyond those guys like Iguodala and certainly Livingston to some extent. So you could see a seven-on-seven, eight-on-eight sort of set, and given the rest periods between the games, I think that's viable for both of these coaching staffs to be able to think along those lines, too. I really do. Yeah, I'm with you there as well. I just don't know that you know certain teams, while they have bit players, while each of these teams have bit players that can do certain things well, they could also be liabilities, whether it's the defensive end or the offensive end, and could get isolated mm -hmm. by these two teams that are more than capable of doing just that. I want to start now with Bradford Bruns on the Money Mitch effect, looking at that Cleveland offense and, and how they've really blossomed these these playoff months. LeBron doing unbelievable things, just past Michael Jordan for most points in postseason history. But Kyrie Irving comes alive, and Kevin Love as well, who 
I don't want to say is underappreciated, but is is playing at the highest level I've seen him play in a Cleveland uniform. Cleveland is getting their version of the big three. What can we expect from these three these three superstars in the finals against a Golden State team, Bradford, that is going to give them, we would assume, the best defensive test that they faced all postseason? Yeah, believe it or not, I'm actually going to start with number zero, Kevin Love, because he was an absolute revelation, Mitch, in that last playoff series. By far, far and away, in my opinion, the best Kevin Love has looked, not only in a certain playoff matchup, really in a Cavs uniform, though, in the wine and gold. And going beyond the numbers, beyond the fact that he was averaging 22 and 12, he was assertive. He was dominant from the get-go in those games versus the Celtics. And by now, we sort of know that Kevin Love has, his game has evolved to the point where it starts essentially from the outside and then he works his way in. I thought that Boston, though, was entirely too lax in terms of allowing him to really get on track from beyond the three-point arc. I think that's something that Golden State can definitely remedy there, particularly with the defense of a Draymond Green defensive player of the year. But when you're talking about Love cranking, knocking down over 50% of his attempts from beyond the arc and then slowly working his way into the post and really being solid, being tenacious underneath informing that tandem with Tristan Thompson. I like the fact, too, that Tyron Lue knows now as well with that further increased confidence in Kevin Love, hey, I can put him out there at center with this second unit and we can still thrive for extensive periods of time. I'm thinking about Love and Thompson specifically, Mitch, and what that combo has been able to do so far in the playoffs. You're talking about that tandem right there with a plus 119 rating. Now, mm. Love, the big question is going to be, does he come up big once again? Does he continue to parlay the recent success into that same sort of thing against Golden State? Last year, who was basically invisible, with the exception of Game 7 down the stretch. We understand that. He's got to do a lot more than 7-5 and five here, and I think he's going to do that. We still know that the two horses, obviously, are LeBron and are Kyrie. Kyrie was absolutely fantastic in Game 4 when LeBron particularly needed him in that first half, saddled with the four fouls. It was up to Irving to really win that game for Cleveland, and he was able to accomplish precisely that. At the end of the day, though, you do have to go back to James, and you think about, obviously, you cited him passing Michael for the revered postseason record already at his age. It's almost unfathomable to actually imagine, but what's remarkable to me is that his efficiency rating his wind shares for 48 minutes. All of that, all those numbers are somehow up from last postseason. And we understand how transcendent he was in last year's playoffs. So I know that Iguodala, he's given a commendable effort there in the past. Draymond Green, he's going to play a part there too. But can Kevin Durant, at least here and there, possession to possession, rise to the defensive challenge? That's what I'm really intrigued to see. And if you're Mike Brown, do you even want him expending that type of energy beyond, say, a quarter or so per contest. That chess match is going to be unbelievable to monitor. Yeah, to me, this is the most exciting matchup in the finals is that Cleveland offense, their big three, against how Golden State plans on defending him. I think, mm-hmm. and I do agree, I think Love might be the key to this whole thing because he's the one guy you're just still not entirely sure what the output's going to be or, or I would say the least confident in. Draymond Green, yeah, I expect him, obviously, looks like the defensive player of the year to get up in in Love's face and and make life difficult for him. Love's going to have to knock down some shots for the Cavs to win this championship. The Kyrie thing, Bradford, is interesting because we know what type of a problem he could be, the tough shots he could hit. They're they're not going to obviously try to put put Steph on him, but Klay Thompson, now I, I know he hasn't shot well, but defensively he can give you a lot. He's one of the few two guards in the league that can make life difficult for Kyrie. 
I would be very, very, I mean, I, I would put it this way. It's a very underrated aspect of Clay's game and could be the key thing to ultimately Golden State winning this thing is if Clay can give them something on Kyrie on the defensive end. Yeah, can you consistently stay in front? And I agree with you there. I think that Clay still, after all these years, Mitch, he's criminally underrated on that end of the floor. And as Golden State has has taken strides to obviously add, Kevin Durant has tweaked some things offensively, and he has, I would say, to a certain extent, fallen a bit farther down the food chain there. He's still the most unbelievable complimentary option that you can imagine that you can have on your team. But right now, for all intents and purposes, he is that complimentary guy. He's the number three guy on most nights, a la Kevin Love. And you cited some of the shooting woes against the Spurs, but his ability to, yes, rein in Kyrie somewhat, make life difficult for him, you're never going to be able to completely shut Kyrie down or completely prevent that dribble drive, that penetration, that knifing through the lane, all those qualities. However, if you can consistently contest the shots, and so far throughout the playoffs, we've seen some poor shooting nights from Kyrie Irving. He's going to get to the basket. He's going to get to the free throw line, but he also can't be given that free reign to be allowed to just launch jumper after jumper, wing three-pointer after wing three-pointer. I thought that Boston was especially poor in terms of the rotation there. The same went for Toronto. Kyrie's not going to be given that much free space. Don't worry about that during these particular set of games in the finals here. But Clay Thompson, he can be as vital, if not more so, guarding Irving as he is on the offensive side of the floor. Although you do know that Brown and company, they certainly will want to see a little better, just a skosh better than 32% from the floor. Yeah, <laughs> that would be that'd be a little uh, ideal for Golden State. And, and ultimately, we know at the end of the day, it all comes back, it all revolves around number 23 for Cleveland. And that's another thing that each team has that burden to do when they play the Cavs is how do you defend LeBron? How can you limit you know his greatness? I expect this to be a chess match that doesn't involve a lot of revolving doors, revolving pieces. Durant is going to have to defend him a lot. Durant's defense has gotten better with the length he has with those long arms and long legs. But I expect we'll see a lot of Iguodala if his health is up to it. I expect we'll see Clay sometimes. And ultimately, Bradford, I expect to see some bigs get in there. They're probably going to, you know, foul him a bit, use some fouls on him, get him to the free throw line as opposed to giving him free points. And you know what? I like what Boston did at the end of that series. They didn't have the firepower, but I'd rather have LeBron be the scorer than the ultimate distributor, if that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense because you think about how effective, obviously, he was as Cleveland closed out that series. But... He was, he was incredibly efficient at that, too. But you almost want him, yes, to be taking the 27 shots, taking the 18 shots, rather than being in that 15-ish range and then just spreading the wealth and giving everybody else those opportunities in the early going, specifically a Kevin Love. And when LeBron was not necessarily attacking the rim as much that you saw there in Game 3 in the first half of Game 4. He was settling for more of those extended opportunities from the floor. Cleveland as a whole, I I don't want to say that the offense was necessarily stagnant, but it definitely takes on a different tenor, doesn't it? It takes on a different personality. So it will be very, very interesting to see how Golden State reacts in that sense. But I do think that there's going to be a certain proactive quality, Mitch, to how Mike Brown, how the Golden State Warriors, how this team, this unit as a whole, does attempt to defend LeBron James. And we know that Durant's going to have that unenviable assignment for the most part. But I do expect, particularly since Andre Iguodala, I did admittedly, I dogged on him a little bit 
during the better part of the regular season. But once March rolled around, we saw a reinvigorated Iguodala. We saw shades of the type of performer he was a couple of postseasons ago when he won that NBA Finals MVP award. I expect the wing trio, essentially, of Durant, of Green to some degree as well, and then Iguodala to all get their shots at him because that's what you have to do. You have to try to wear him down, that cumulative effect, and hope that all of the minutes, all of the wear and tear from this season and years past eventually catches up. Hey, even though he has looked as Herculean as anyone else in the history of this game, this is an unprecedented playoff run. Sooner or later, Golden State has enough quality bodies to throw at him to wear him down to some extent, unlike all the Eastern Conference opponents that Cleveland essentially annihilated to get to this point. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch, but I, I do want to take a moment here on the Money Mitch Effect with Bradford Bruns previewing the 2017 NBA Finals. Because I was going to save this for later, but you brought him up a few times. There's a lot of storylines in this finals, but one I don't think anybody saw coming was the return to face Cleveland by Mike Brown, who was fired by the team <laughs> twice. He's going to be on the on the sideline at least for game one, and, and it, it is a tough situation. We're going to offer our support to Steve Kerr dealing with the back struggles that he has for the past few years. But Mike Brown mm-hmm. is going to be on the sideline for game one. It looks like a few games at least after that. I don't know. This league is funny because you think you know everything that's going to happen, but I would have never guessed Mike Brown would be coaching on the sidelines against the Cavaliers in a championship series. But that said, Bradford, as funny as that may appear on the outside, he's been on the bench for this postseason. They haven't lost for any of those games. This is a Warriors team that's 27-1, and I think, in their last 28 games. Brown's doing a great job holding the fort down and, at the very least, maintaining status quo. No, they've responded exceedingly well, as you would expect from mostly, by and large, a veteran-laden team. I do wonder, though, in the event that it gets tight, in the event that maybe some of the players get tight during the NBA Finals, Golden State's not going to blow out the Cavs by 15, by 20. It's not going to be the thing that we saw versus Utah. It's not going to be like most of the contests we saw versus San Antonio. When things are really getting tight, and you have to look, you have to assemble that huddle and basically be able to dole out instructions and get that inner belief, summon that inner belief from your players, is that where you're going to see the difference between what a Steve Kerr would normally be able to articulate, to communicate, and get across versus Mike Brown? And this isn't a slight in any way against Mike Brown. I'm just saying that Golden State hasn't been in a situation such as this, the magnitude, the high-stakes scenario with Mike Brown at the helm, as it has, on a number of occasions with Steve Kerr. We understand that. Steve Kerr has already won a title. He took the Warriors back to the finals last season. They've been in that proverbial foxhole with him. The players believe and know what he can bring across at that point. Mike Brown has never been in this sort of a situation with these players. So I do wonder at some juncture, Mitch, I think it's natural. It's fun to speculate. At some point, is that going to play a bit of a role? Because I'll be honest, given everything that we've heard, everything that we've heard reported regarding Steve Kerr's condition too, are you going to be able to actually maybe switch midstream when it Mm -hmm. comes to the coaching situation as this series progresses? So much of that is up in the air right now until basically I'm told otherwise. If I'm a Golden State player, I know that Kerr has been on hand for practices. He's been around the building. He's had a role, obviously, a hand in assembling and orchestrating these game plans. I'm still playing on Mike Brown calling the shots. 
when everything comes down to it because the curse situation is still so dicey. It's still so iffy. You can't bank on him being there. And that is unfortunate for just the overall quality, I think, of this series. Mm -hmm. You want everybody, personnel-wise on the floor. You want the coaches. You want everybody to be out there at full strength. So it is It is a rough, rough chain of events there for Steve Kerr. I do wonder, though, how Mike Brown is going to react in this uber, uber competitive set. Right, and just one thing to add, and it is a, it is a ultra competitive setting, as you said. But I think it's going to help the team and Mike Brown, Bradford, that Kerr's there, that he's backstage, yeah. that he's behind uh, in the locker room, that he's talking to the team, that he's showing up at practice. We know he's not able to be on the sideline, but he's not completely incapacitated. And I think that will help them ever so much. True. Well, we'll have to see. I mean, this is going to be another another wrinkle into this ultra dramatic series. So. I'm excited to see how that goes as well. But I wanted to switch to the offensive side of things for Golden State because Mm -hmm. this is a juggernaut like we've never seen before. And they had Kevin Durant. He's still playing at that elite top five, top three in the NBA level. But the flip side of that is Steph Curry, Bradford, is looking as good as he's ever looked, in my opinion, in the postseason. And I think you can make a direct line, direct correlation between that. Last year, starting out the regular season so well, getting worn down by the playoffs. And this year starting out the regular season not as hot, but not having to do as much, wear himself down as much, and has never looked more fresh come spring and summertime. Pacing himself, right? In a sense, at least as far as the offensive responsibilities, Mitch had been concerned. And that's the thing. Last year, I thought that Steve Kerr, Luke Walton, they did a remarkable job, actually, of limiting or containing Steph Curry's minutes during the regular season. But that was one thing insofar as he still assumed the lion's share of the offensive responsibilities, right? He was the go-to guy. Well, this year, obviously, Kevin Durant, he misses a significant amount of time after coming over from Oklahoma City, but still... Steph Curry, the onus was never on him to completely be the indisputable number one option on every single evening. He was able to recognize that. He was able to grow in a lot of different areas, I think, of his game. And then when he was really called upon down the stretch, we saw some of those patented explosive displays that we've just come to regularly witness and expect from Steph Curry from beyond three-point range. So, yeah, Steph Curry's looking fantastic right now, moving without the ball, doing his customary thing. He looks fantastic, and I still I think about Golden State, how effective it is moving with and without the basketball as a unit, and I wonder, for me, Mitch, it's going to be really, really alluring here to see exactly how Cleveland is able to somewhat contain Golden State in terms of coming out in transition, in terms of the Warriors on the other side of the floor. You think about how many points per game this team generates turnovers it's 19.3 that's Mm -hmm. far and away the best mark in the league there and last season when this team rolled up 73 wins it was at just 17.1 i know at just 17.1 we know that the warriors want to get out they want to run all the time they're a fast break team cleveland much more iso oriented but for cleveland of paramount importance to have to get back to because you know with that pressure with the athletes that the dubs do possess they're going to create their fair share of turnovers but can Cleveland respond accordingly, get back down the other end of the floor, and be able to defend in transition to identify and pick up those shooters? Because yeah. the attempts, hey, they're going to be coming in a fast and furious manner. Well, you mentioned it. It's, it's so crucial to this game, and it's so fascinating to how the NBA has changed is that the transition game could ruin one of these teams. If you turn the ball over, mm-hmm. both these teams like to run, especially Golden State, because they're not going to run and go for the dunk. They're going to run and get guys in their shooting lanes and, and knock down threes. So, yep. And that's when you see these 9-0, 12-0 runs out of nowhere. I, I look, too, 
at Clay Thompson and Draymond Green. They're not the Curry and Durant one-two punch, but no matter how poor Clay's shooting, Bradford, the Cavs are going to have to respect his shot and his ability to heat up. And then Draymond is going to, unfortunately, because you have to sacrifice something on this team, going to get some open threes. If he's knocking down his threes, boy, I don't know how you beat this team. So there are some wrinkles to watch the further down you go on this list. No doubt about that. And speaking once again, reverting to some of those would-be X factors or potential possibilities in that realm, Mitch, Cleveland, as we, I think that there is going to be a certain amount of regression from some of those bid players, some of those bench players, if and when they're actually able to get on the out on the floor more in this series. You're not going to have the Fries, the Smiths, the Corvers. They're not going to continue with that effective field goal percentage of over 70%. That's not sustainable. There's going to be regression there. What I do want to see, though, and I love seeing some of those signs from Darren Williams in Game 5 versus the Celtics. And you think about what he's been able to do when Irving has needed a respite, has needed a blow here and there. I'm thinking about that net rating for Cleveland's set of primary substitutes in the playoffs. It's a huge improvement from the regular season total. Why is that? It's because Darren Williams progressively setting the tone and leading the way. I do think that's where Cleveland could have a bit of a built-in advantage when you do get deeper into the series and you have to go to those second units or at least decent shares of the second units. I don't think Golden State has anything, Mitch, to really contrast that or counter what Darren Williams will be bringing. If he shows that same sort of aggressiveness offensively getting to the rim, which we know he's now physically capable of doing again, as well as spreading it around and distributing the basketball, mm, that could be pretty (laughs) vital for Cleveland, too. He's got to be Utah Darren Williams. Definitely not Brooklyn Nets Darren Williams. (laughs) (laughs) uh, As long as we get the right one there, they'll, they'll be okay. Uh, I think, you know, and, and the other thing, too, with Cleveland, the, the one weakness everyone said, if, if you can even call it a weakness at that point, that Golden State has is interior. You know, they, they don't have the money to sign valuable guys. They have uh, as valuable guys, I should say, Zaza Pachulia, JaVale McGee, David West coming over. Uh, Tristan Thompson, this is going to be a big series for him. Can he control the glass? Can he give Cleveland second-chance op- second opportunities and, and I bring back up Love because Love is going to have to be a beast on the glass as well. That's where Cleveland can attack if they can extend possessions and, and create new ones. And to your point, which version of Tristan Thompson are we going to see? Are we going to see the guy who utterly dominated back in that December meeting versus Golden State? Are we going to see the guy who was responsible for six of the 18 offensive rebounds the Cavaliers had in that game? Or are we going to see someone more along the lines? of really the disappearing act from the January meeting. Pachulia in that particular contest was able to hold him down fairly well. And Tristan Thompson, he had a bit of a yo-yo effect going there down the stretch in the regular season, thumb injury notwithstanding. It's been a different story, though, I would say, for the most part, I would argue, during the playoffs. He's been back to that individual who's been absolutely relentless, that insatiable yearning for the boards and he and love in tandem as you said mitch they're going to have to really establish that tone down in the interior because especially if golden state doesn't wait especially long to flip that switch when it comes to going with more of an undersized if you will smaller lineup that's going to be incumbent on the Cavs to really assert themselves down low because given the matchups given the different combinations in this series I just don't see with Channing Frye, yes, he gives you that ability to extend the Golden State defense, but he's such a defensive liability. He doesn't have the strength down low despite the size. 
I don't see him really – I don't envision him playing a vital, vital role in this series. It's going to be a lot of minutes for Thompson. It's going to be a lot of minutes for Love. And it's going to be really interesting to see how Love is able to keep up from a stamina, from a conditioning standpoint, especially if he is so involved on the offensive end. And I know we've talked a lot so far about Kevin Love's involvement in the offense so far, but I just – I want to stretch stress again, Mitch, with Green, of course, being on that side – for Golden State, I just I want to see if Golden State has a drastically different approach when it comes to actually denying Kevin Love the touches in the early going. Mm-hmm. Think about the Indiana series. Think about Toronto and then Boston too. It was basically Kevin Love with ease integrating himself into the ball game. And you know that LeBron James, as the captain out there, the floor general, he's going to ensure that Love gets a lot of those touches and those possessions early. But his ability to get into the game with relative ease and launch those three-pointers, I don't think that we're going to see those in full supply, just a plethora of those attempts with Draymond Green in all likelihood guarding him for the most part. But I want to see the Warriors get out, rush him off the three-point line, deny him the early touches so that Cleveland can't get itself into that early, early rhythm. More than anything else, I really thought that was Boston's downfall, not going out, not meeting, not forcing LeBron more often to be that primary offensive contributor, allowing Kevin Love to kind of get off there basically and do his thing early on. You've got to disrupt the rhythm. You've got to disrupt the flow a little bit. And you have to do it in the first quarter because you know they're going to zero right away. Right, and uh, that's a good point because when Love gets going early, his confidence starts brimming and, and he can do great things. Uh, about Tristan Thompson, uh, have we confirmed that uh, the Cavs have banned uh, his would-be fiance from the building? Is that Are they going to try to I'm, keep her away? <laughs> I'm efforting, Mitch, to get the the ideal, the, the real scoop on that. It's still a work in progress, but, yes, we are trying to confirm that actually as we speak. Okay, you know, because you don't want any distractions this time of year, and uh, I can't think of many bigger distractions than that whole that whole scene. But be that as oh, it – Oh, look how it worked out for James Harden. <laughs> yeah, and compare last year to this year, it's night and day. Uh, <laughs> I, I do want to, before we get to predictions here on the Money Mitch Effect with Bradford Bruns, I want to just go over one thing, and that's a game of, let's say, who you trust. As we go down the depth charts for both of these teams, can you... Ooh, love it. Yeah, how, how many of these Cavaliers players, we'll start with there, do you trust in large, important stretches of this game? Do you expect to see Cal Corver, Channing Fry, uh, Iman Shumpert's rotational minutes have been up and down, J.R. Smith is probably going to play, but we don't know what we're going to get. How far down the line does it go for Cleveland that, of players you can trust in the NBA Finals? Well, J.R. Smith gradually, Mitch, was beginning to regain that shooting stroke in the last couple of rounds of postseason play. And the defensive effort, I never want to fault J.R. for the defensive effort the majority of the time. Sometimes, though, I think that he is extremely overzealous, shall we say. He's very quick to bite. He's very quick to uh, do that and not necessarily be able to react and then accordingly. If that happens, if that happens consistently against Golden State, he is literally going to have his ankles broken. Now we saw last season, though, we saw, yes, he had some conundrums on that side of the floor as well. For me, I don't think that Kyle Korver is going to be allowed to play much of a role in this particular series, much the same way that Channing Fry he falls into that category for me. I simply think that with how many, and this is really a bit of, I don't want to say an underrated facet, but it's something that probably doesn't get referenced enough when you talk about Golden State's offensive game, the system, the structure, and how the Warriors go about their business. The bevy of screens, how you have to navigate a seemingly Mm -hmm. endless array of screens to then locate 
the shooter before oh once again the ball is probably flung across the court to another another would-be sharpshooter but I just don't think we saw what Corver was able to do or not able to do rather in January in that setting I don't see that drastically changing here Channing Fry too yeah he has some good movement particularly for someone of his size of his frame and stature but the strength factor once again I just don't think it's there in enough supply for me Fly and Corver probably end up taking more of a backseat in this series and yeah. the ever trusty Amon Shumpert Amon Shumpert he didn't play a lot first couple of rounds of postseason action and for good reason he had an up and down regular season but it seems as if when things really really get tight and Tyron Lue needs somebody to help solidify the defensive stops on the perimeter there for Cleveland you can usually turn to Amon Shumpert and you know what you're going to get I think Shumpert's versatility defensively his ability to at least help guard a number of those different threats for Golden State it's going to bode pretty pretty well for the Cavs and Darren Williams some defensive shortcomings notwithstanding I think he's got to be out there he has to be you know facilitating he has to be one of those playmakers LeBron James cited before Williams even arrived in Ohio so for me it's Williams and Shumpert I'm leaning on those guards a lot more for minutes for contributions for the stuff of substance as opposed to Corver and Fry. That's not to say those guys can't be involved in some regard, in some capacity, but right now, just judging by how part three is going to unwind, I think, expect to see a lot more of the guards right there rather than the uh, the new addition in Corver and Fry, one of the old bystanders. Yeah, you're going to need Shumpert for his defense, for his movement. I don't know that Corver can keep up, as you said, defensively running around out there. And Darren Williams is a playmaker, is somebody that can create, which is an added bonus this time of year, and also can keep Kyrie Irving a little fresh. They won't have to run him into the ground from game one. It's nice to give him that breather so he can be fresh on the offensive end. Let's look now at the Golden State side of this. It's the same game because you have your big four. You know Iguodala and Livingston are going to be there. But after that, are there guys on this bench? I mean, you could look at every one of the, the Golden State bigs and wonder fairly if they're trustworthy this time of year. Who who do you think is the valuable pieces off their bench? Well, you really don't have to look any further, quite frankly, Mitch, than JaVale McGee. For better or worse, that's the thing. We talk about strength in numbers. Golden State at times likes to still talk about strength in numbers. But for the most part, it's the starting five and then a couple of guys trickling down there on the bench. But for me, it is JaVale McGee. During the regular season, I, I wasn't entirely impressed, to be honest with you, from what with what the Warriors were able to do there and JaVale McGee. But in the postseason, McGee has definitely had his moments. He's definitely had that ability to kind of shift the climate on occasion, given a matchup, if he's able to use that link down in the post, if he's able to then allow, let's say he gets the big slot, he makes the big play defensively, and then allows the Warriors to trigger the offense or go back the other way. And it all sorts of feeds into that transition-based style that Golden State covets. So for me, quite frankly, I actually can envision, I honestly can envision McGee playing a larger role in the proceedings than even a Pachulia. I really can, just because of that ability to be more of an intimidating presence in the lane, I think, consistently as a shot blocker. To me, if I'm Cleveland and I'm going down in the post, I really feel as if the shot-altering abilities of a McGee supersede those of Pachulia, mm-hmm. and we won't even get into the physical contact, that realm, against Gold, that, or excuse <laughs> me, against San Antonio. But for me, it's McGee and really not that many other individuals of overall substance because you think about some of the younger guys on this team, some of the rookies and second-year players, I just don't think that they're going to be given that long of a leash. I don't think that they're to be trusted necessarily already 
in this particular setting. So it's really McGee or bust when you're looking for individuals who may contribute beyond the regulars, beyond the common people like, of course, in Iguodala and uh, Pachulia near the end of that regular rotation. Yeah, I definitely would say Sean Livingston is another guy that with his mid-range game, yeah. off, game off the bench could be could be something. Ian Clark's the one guy that I think could come in off the bench and surprise some people. He's a shooter, especially if Clay's struggling. He's going to get open looks. I mean, that's the thing with this team is you're going to get open looks based on who they have on the court. But all right, now Bradford Bruns, Money Mitch Effect. Let's look at predictions. And this is going to be, whatever happens, this is going to be a legacy-changing finals for both of these teams. You have LeBron trying to further etch his name in history. Kyrie Irving trying to get to another finals, uh, another dominant performance, trying to outperform Steph Curry in his second final, which on the flip side, Durant made this move in the offseason trying to come to win a championship. Here he is. And Curry, who for all his regular season success, is still waiting for that transcendent moment in the finals, does not want to get outplayed again by the rival point guard. You have tons of other storylines as well. How does that play into this, and how, Bradford, do you see this finals unwinding? Yeah, Steph Curry from the Golden State side trying to exercise some of those postseason, those final demons, no doubt about that. And then Kevin Durant, can he finally get his breakthrough on this stage after that loss, Oklahoma State, Miami? So It seems like so many years ago now, doesn't it? It <laughs> oh, seems yeah. like so many years ago. But this postseason, I, I wonder if it is not going to begin and end all things from a concrete perspective with respect to LeBron James. You mentioned, of course, the key word, I think their legacy, transcendent. That's another one there. This is the sort of matchup, the third part here, that really could define the overall greatness, the overall ability to come that much closer to Jordan or depending on what camp you're in, potentially even surpass him. If LeBron James in this instance is able to have the culmination of what has been an unparalleled postseason run. If he's able to somehow muster the inner strength, the individual strength, and then will his teammates bring them up as well to somehow for a second consecutive year topple the Warriors, it would go down as one of the greatest, no doubt one of the greatest feats that we've seen in the sport, if not right up there, top two, three, maybe even the cream of the crop. I'm not sure. I'm not going to make that determination but i will say even though everything on paper ostensibly favors golden state home court advantage as well efficiency sheer number of options playmakers in this particular instance i'm going to go with the best player in the world yet again i do think that particularly in basketball when you're talking about matchups of titans it still will come down to individual duels in the waning minutes. I understand the Golden State has the options. Hector Amon Green is arguably one of the most effective fourth-quarter players in the entire league. But LeBron James has not been denied throughout this postseason run. I'm not going to be the individual who says he's going to actually be, not, be denied in the NBA Finals again either. Against all conventional wisdom, going against the grain, Cavaliers, yes, on the road, I'm going to say for the second straight year, because of a superhuman performance, once again from James, with enough complimentary help from Irving Love and the rest of the game, that Cleveland actually prevails in seven. Okay. Back to, that's, that's it. <laughs> back to back yep. years, they go into Oracle and win a game seven. All right. I, I can't bet against them. <laughs> I can't do it. Hey, no, I, uh, I totally understand that. I've been thinking about this matchup. You know, we've had a lot of time to think, oddly enough, in the past what seems like months since they've played an actual basketball game. 
I'm gonna go. Not. I'm gonna go with Golden State. I think uh, I'm gonna say actually it'll be a shorter series. I think it'll be five games. And this is not disparaging mm. to LeBron or Kyrie Irving. What I keep coming back to is LeBron James could go for a forty-point triple-double in this series, and Golden State could still outscore this team. That's that's the the comeback to me. I think it's going to be on the defensive side. I think LeBron's going to play great. I think Kyrie's going to play great. I don't really know what to expect out of Kevin Love because, as you said, for six and a half games, he didn't play well against Golden State. I just think there's too much weaponry on this Golden State team, and I haven't seen a team constructed like this in my lifetime with arguably four of the top 12 to 15 players in the league on one roster. So as great as LeBron is, as all-time great as he is, and as good as I expect him to play in this finals, I just I look at the defensive matchups for the Cleveland and I just got to cringe a little bit because Golden State has put together this mega power team that, I don't know, that makes the Monstars blush a little bit. So I, I do like Golden State in this series. You are logical. You are <laughs> rational. Clearly, I am not. But that's, <laughs> yeah, that's well, the fact of the matter. Wait, there you go. When, it, when, it boils down, when it boils down to it, Mitch, I, I think of LeBron's place. I know how cognizant he is of what this could do for his legacy as well. And the best individual on the floor still resides in mm-hmm. that wine and gold. And, yes, I know that I just – I think back to a couple of years ago, too, and I think that, yes, Durant, of course, was in Oklahoma City at the time, but I think of what he was able to do with the likes of a Matthew Della Vadova on the mm-hmm. floor with uh, yeah. <laughs> Kevin Love, with Kyrie Irving actually being out of the proceedings and somehow willing those individuals to prevail in even a game and to be competitive somewhat in that series. And now with this team actually – with this hand-chosen, basically hand-picked group of players maturing, evolving as a collection, and just continuing to gain confidence and gain symmetry, really, with one another, I think, I think this is the time. I, just, I do think this is the time accompanied by his greatness. This is, we're never going to see LeBron James at more of a peak level, physically, mentally, everything coming together and coalescing at once. That's why I'm savoring this opportunity as much as possible, and I do think that this is this could be the pinnacle of his overall body of work, body of accomplishments, and he's well aware of that. Can he get just enough help to help him go over the top? That'll be the question. It will be. Well, we're going to have to see. This could be a finals for the ages, and like we said, it will go until June 18th if necessary, so saddle up and get ready. And just pointing out, you know, I'm – also consider this me being generous because we've gone against each other twice already in the postseason uh, predictions, and it hasn't worked out so well for you. I'm just gonna gonna throw that out there. So maybe you can make up some ground it here. Not. <laughs> yeah, your so-called NBA authority in the Lou in the Gateway City, not exactly performing up to expectations so far. And you know what? Nobody takes that harder than yours no. truly, Mitch. I mean, you know, I, I've run the gamut as far as college bowl season. I would, you have. You know, I like to think that. Uh, yeah, I, I earned my I earned my plaudits in that category and you know mostly nails with respect to a lot of the seasons but whatever has happened in in this entirely predictable nba postseason uh yeah surely enough i have i have faltered in well, that aspect. well let's just say the shoes on the other foot from bold prediction between the two of us so it's nice to be uh it's nice to be the authority for a change given uh, how poorly hey, it went I for can, me <laughs> all i can say is that this the nba finals will remove all of your sorrows from the preakness my friend oh yeah yeah it still comes back to that well bradford brun thanks for coming on the show as we get ready for the 2017 nba finals it should be good and yeah we'll have to chat again uh either during this long nba final stretch or sometime after to see when the dust is settled who is at the top of the mountain but thanks again for coming on the money mitch effect 
Hey, I always look forward to it, buddy. Thank you very much for having me. Have a terrific day. All right, big thanks to Bradford yet again for coming on the Money Mitch Effect and discussing the NBA Finals. June 1st, tomorrow night, that's when game one starts. It can go all the way to June 18th, so get your popcorn ready, sit back, and enjoy the conclusion to the NBA season. Big thanks to Bradford yet again. All right, now it's time to talk to Eric Roberts as we switch sports on the Money Mitch Effect and talk Stanley Cup Final. My personal favorite this time of year, Penguins and Predators. Nashville's first Stanley Cup appearance. They lose the first game 5-3. to Nearly come back and win it. A lot to talk about there as we recap game one, look ahead at the rest of the series, as well as make some predictions. And talk about the guy that threw the catfish onto the ice. Hero? Legend? You be the judge. It's Eric Roberts from Fox Sports Radio and the Hockey Writers here now on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, now joining us on the Money Mitch Effect to talk about the Stanley Cup Finals, which are already one game in the 2017 edition between the Nashville Predators and the Pittsburgh Penguins from Fox Sports Radio in California and from the hockey writers, Eric Roberts, friend of the show. Eric, thanks for joining the Money Mitch Effect. Oh, no problem, man. I had to jump on with you after that, uh, that doozy of a first game. Had a little bit of everything going on in it. It did, uh, and it's such an exciting time of year for all sports fans, but hockey fans in particular. We're never really sure what we're going to get in the final, especially right from the jump in Game 1. Eric, if you would have told me toward the end of that first period how the game would have ended up, I would have been shocked. Pittsburgh was up 3 to nothing, was controlling a lot of the action, and seemed destined to at least cruise to a Game 1 victory. That was not the case. Nashville storms back, ties it up late. But Pittsburgh, behind the goal of Jake Gunsel, scores and then adds an empty net goal to win 5-3. to three. But I want to start with that Pittsburgh attack that jumped on Nashville early. There was that disallowed P.K. Subban goal. But from that time on to the end of the first period, what did Pittsburgh do to really impose their will on a Nashville Predators team on the road in their first Stanley Cup game ever? You know, I think they used, you know, it was a lot of their speed, and I think a lot of it could have boiled down to, you know, they have a roster full of guys who've been there. They've been, they know what to expect. I think they, they came out just uh, gripping their sticks a little looser than the Predators, and then I think that, that first challenge goal that, you know, that was disallowed really took the, set, the wind out of the sails of the Predators. And I mean, it came down to them just being kind of a little more lax, a little more ready to go, and uh, it, I think a lot of their attack boils down to their speed and their possession. So it's, I think once the the predators settled into the into the game a little bit you saw it, it's how everything switched to their favor but it was definitely the penguins early um and uh the predators were were lucky to get back in that game because it could have gotten a lot worse yeah it definitely could have and there's a lot that nashville can take away from this game eric both good and bad one of the bad is taking dumb penalties against the pittsburgh power play and that's how this started you take two penalties in the same uh, stoppage to do a two-minute full five-on-three, you're probably going to give up a goal uh, to Pittsburgh. I thought, you know, Crosby with a little, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, a, a sharp play that could or could or could not have been called, uh, stepping in front of a Nashville defenseman. But from there, it was the second goal, which to me should never happen, Eric, and that's a third defensive pairing against Crosby's top Pittsburgh line. I mean, I saw that, and you, only, you knew it was a matter of time before Pittsburgh scores because that's just what Crosby does. Yeah, that's definitely a situation where Crosby, I'm sure Crosby noticed immediately that he said, okay, this is probably a time to exploit a favorable matchup, and 
it's it's a chess match, that's for sure. So Nashville falls down three nothing. They get the bounce, the goal that Benino just threw the puck at the net. It took a funny bounce off of Pekka and uh, Pekka Rene, and then ended up bouncing it off of Ekholm. It's three nothing at that point. And you think Nashville might be maybe looking ahead to game two, just trying to get their bearings. But that second period, I know they, you know, I know they got it to uh, just score one goal there, but they held Pittsburgh without a shot. That's something that hasn't happened in the Stanley Cup in multiple decades. Uh, I think actually since shots were taken uh, as an official statistic. But to see a team like Pittsburgh was held without a shot, that to me seemed like a whoa moment in the Stanley Cup if ever there was one. That was startling to see Nashville just utterly dominate the Penguins for an entire period. Yeah, it was kind of crazy. They they kept kind of just kicking on the uh, shot sense meter throughout the game. It was like, okay, it's, uh, it's 15 minutes, it's 16 minutes, 20 minutes, and I think they went about 37 minutes or so until, you know, uh, Jake Gunsel got a shot in and um, really just shot it through the heart of the Predators after battling back from being down 3-0, controlling the play for nearly 40 minutes and not allowing a shot, and then Gunsel just comes back and gets a little wrister to beat Rene. And that's it. Yeah. It, was, it was a crazy, it was a crazy roller coaster ride for both teams, I'm sure. But how is the team like Nashville? We talk about how good their defensemen are, maybe the best core four defensemen in the league. But that being said, how, how do you hold anyone, let alone a Pittsburgh team, to no shots for that long? It seems, at least from the outside, like it's utterly impossible. What, what were the Predators doing to make it impossible for the Penguins to get a shot on goal? It was interesting because I feel like they were just they were doing really well uh, keeping them to the outside and really not giving them any any space to come into the zone because if, if somebody's coming in and they're trying to look shot at the blue line and you're stepping up it's going to be real hard to get a shot through it. I think the the Penguins have already had a couple instances of playoff where they, they try to get too pretty you know um, or they uh, won too many passes and they they turn it over and it's going the other way. So I think the Predators they took away a lot of the space that the Penguins use and they that's what they have their their legs for. They try to create create that space by going wide and I think that the Predators were just on them they, you know they never were more than a stick length away and mm-hmm. it's, I think they they were just really in the face of the Penguins that, that really kept them from getting any shots through to uh, Pekka for so long yeah you keep a team on the outside all you leave them is the possibility of a low angle shot which at this level you don't really want to do because you take a bad shot it could just basically jump start a breakout for the other team so Nashville controlling the play and really settling down we mentioned those goals early, you know, a couple of bad breaks, a, a bad line change, a five-on-three, and, and, a, and a bounce that didn't go your way. It wasn't like they were getting completely dominated. They were on the wrong side of things. I, I do want to go back to that goal that was overturned. I'm very much so, Eric, against the offside challenge rule, especially given how long after the fact you can challenge. I don't know that that was conclusive, but I know that it disrupted the momentum that Nashville was building, and, and I just... I don't like to see plays like that swing the momentum in a Stanley Cup game. Yeah, which I think you, I think you touched on it there. So I, I think a lot of coaches, I mean, of course they want to get the goal disallowed, but I think a lot of coaches use it to, even to just disrupt the momentum, even if they feel that you know it's, it, there's a good possibility of it being a goal. I feel like coaches do use that as a, just a, a strategy method. Okay, it's early in the game. I think it was about seven minutes in the first. Okay, we don't want the Predators getting – getting the ball rolling, so let's challenge it and see what happens. But yeah, I'm with you. I don't like the, the offside challenge. It, it disrupts everything, and a lot of times you're splitting hairs, with, and a lot of the videos aren't even, you can't really see the puck. It's, it's, it's kind of been a mess ever since. It's been been a possibility for coaches to challenge. It's, it's really been, it's, it's, yeah, it's not something you don't want to spend five, six minutes 
super slow mos and mm-hmm. looking at the blur of someone's skate and a puck. It's really it's really bad for for everybody involved. I think. Yeah, we know why they did it. They don't want that egregious goal, that egregious infraction, costing a team a big game. But this is you know this is the uh, the downside of that. And one of the uh, new proposals that I that I had heard that I thought was interesting was if and I'm interested to hear how you feel about this, Eric. But if a team gets possession of the puck then you can't go back and challenge it so the challenges are only good if it's a clean entry into, into the zone for a goal i'd actually be very much so in favor of that yeah that would be yeah i think that would kind of uh, that would help because there's definitely been instances where they score the goal and they've been in the zone for four or five minutes people have backed around and thought, hey, when, when would they even come offside it's just yeah there needs to be something a little more finite to use and use as guidelines than to just okay i'm gonna toss in toss out the challenge flag and see what happens yeah, well, it's something that uh, isn't going away in the near future, but we'll we'll move on here on the Money Mitch Effect with Eric Roberts looking at the 2017 Stanley Cup Final. And, Eric, we, we look at the negatives that Nashville has from this game, and it starts with, unfortunately, Pekka Rene. He gave up those first four goals on nine shots. Pittsburgh uh, finished with about te- with 12 in the game, but four on nine, those first nine scored goals against Pekka Rene. He's been up and down this year, but this was as down as it's got. Why? What caused him to struggle in this game? Was he not seeing the puck cleanly? Was he not on his angles? What do you think, if there is one thing that you can put your finger on, why Pekka Rene struggled so much in game one? You know, it, it's hard to say because, you know, he is such a he is such a good goalie. And I think it's he just has these, these low moments. He's had a couple, and, you know, I think in the, in the Duck series where he just lets in kind of soft goals, and I think, uh, you know, that might have been his game this this series where he has his down moment. Um, for the Predators, I'm hope, uh, they probably hope that that was his low moment too and he can only get up from there really. Because, you know, like I said, the, the Guntel shot, I mean, sure, he might have been kind of lulled to sleep after being, uh, after they were held shotless for 37 minutes. There was a couple bad bounces. I think he, you know, he's just, I, his focus wasn't there, I think, to start this series off. And, you know, it's, it's fortunate though because they saw that they could play. They saw that they can't control it. And even if the people in front of them, I'm, I think, pretty sure they believe in him still, even with a, an off game. And I think they they're coming out of that game, even even though they lost and they did mount the comeback, but it was for nothing. Um, I think they're they're coming out in a good spot, knowing that you know we can skate with these guys. They're not they're not gods or anything. We can we can hang with them and control them for for pro, uh, prolonged periods of time. I thought he was a little off on some of his angles, even with even Malkin's goal in the five on three. It looked like he saw that shot cleanly. He just wasn't able to make the save. I. I'd like to think it's a blip in the radar considering how good he's been for most of this pl- these playoffs and, and how well his team around him uplifted him and kind of carried him to the end of that game getting back into it. And I'm in agreement with you 100%, Eric, on one fact, and that's if you would have gotten... I mean, there are no moral victories in the Stanley Cup, but if you would have gotten blown out in Nashville's case, that's a lot, lot worse to have to recover from than going into game two thinking, okay, well, we played bad early, but we were the better team for most of this game. We came back. We showed we can come back from goal deficits. I think there's a lot more positive to take away. While there is no moral victories, it's a much better position to be in than having gotten obliterated in game one, which they were well on their way to doing. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, in, in games where you, you could be getting blown out or the game's getting away from you, you start to try to build uh, build better habits into the next game. If it's late and you know, you're know you losing by four in the third period, you try to start building towards the next game, start getting good habits formed and, you know, get the momentum really moving into the next time you see him, not even if, if the game that you're currently in is lost. And luckily for the Predators, they were down early. So, you know, they did, they started, you know, getting the momentum, got back to the fundamentals and then 
you know, we're able to come back. And, you know, that's a moral victory right there. Hey, we didn't pack it in. Let's see what we could do. See, maybe we could steal a win. And, no, they didn't, of course, with the with the Gunsel shot late in the third. But, um, you know, yeah, they definitely should be walking out of that building heads held high. You know, they, they might even feel a little disappointed, feeling like they should have they should have won that game, you know, and then that the, the the Penguins stole one from them. But, yeah, they should definitely be going into the game, too, with the idea that, hey, let's, let's try to split the series, maybe steal home ice advantage and, and get get back to Nashville with a 1-1 split. Yeah, it's, it puts them into a better situation. They're undefeated 4-0 after losses in the playoffs this year. So if anybody knows how to rebound, it's them. And lastly, on game one, Eric, uh, another big loser in this game would have been the urban legend of what the was the guy that threw the catfish onto the ice. Could you imagine if they would have come back and won that game, what his legacy would have been in Nashville? But it's good to see he's not getting charged with crimes now in Pittsburgh. Yeah, he's he's already kind of a legend. It looks like for getting uh getting it sneaking it in the whole the I read up on it him sneaking it in his pants. He like covered it with uh with Old Spice spray stuff like that. So he's already partially a legend. And if he would have he would have uh, triggered that comeback and with the wind and the catfish on the ice, man, he would have. I don't think he'd be buying a drink in Nashville for quite a bit. Yeah, it's something that I think I I think only true hockey fans understand or at least can get the rationale. I mean, you've probably heard it yourself, but trying to explain something like this to people on the outside is pretty tough. People throwing catfish onto the ice. Oh, yeah. I actually had to explain it to somebody at work yesterday, and they're like, why did somebody throw a catfish? And then you have to jump back into the whole Red Wings thing, and it's, it's, it's a long process. It really is. It is, but uh, I can think there's definitely worse things that people could be throwing out there, so I think catfish is pretty tame in the grand scheme of things. Uh, and there will definitely be some catfish in Nashville when that series goes back. Uh, for game three, but we do have game two uh, tom- on uh, tonight, actually, as we record this, game two of the series, and Eric Roberts here on the Money Mitch Effect. One thing Nashville has to do better, one thing Pittsburgh shined at, was in the face-off circle. They won 50, 58% of their draws, Nashville at 42, and what I thought was interesting about this stat, Eric, was that the Predators did get Mike Fisher back, so that was a big, big uplift for them. They're already down Ryan Johansson, but Nashville's going to have to find some way to get better in the faceoff circle if they want to contend. You know how lethal Pittsburgh is when they can win those draws, especially in their uh, offensive zone. They could be very, very troublesome for the Predators. Yeah, yeah, which is uh, which is interesting because, you know, they, we talked we talk about a good amount about how they, they went that 37 minutes without a shot, and, you know, they were winning these faceoffs. They were getting possession to start to start plays, and, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it does boil down to, you know, they naturally can't give them, you know, possession of the puck and it all starts with the faceoff and I think Crosby went in like 10 for his first 10 in the in the dot and you did you definitely don't want to give that guy a, a, a head of steam you know starting off the play with the puck and pretty much imposing whatever plays he wants to run out of a out of a faceoff circle in the defensive or the offensive zone yeah and, and I think part of that too is just Crosby's brilliance and some of the other centers that they have but th- this game was funny to me because there were long stretches where there were no faceoffs so uh, I think in that pers- in that area, it favors the Predators if they can just continue to play without many stoppages and just keep going. But, you know, Pittsburgh down the line, and it starts with Crosby, but Malkin, again, is another guy that, for whatever reason, Eric, he's just perennially over or underrated, I should say, year after year. But we get to these big stages, and who's the guy showing up scoring first for the Penguins? None other than Evgeny Malkin. Yeah, he's he's definitely. I mean, you, you're going to be definitely being a little bit of a shadow in Pittsburgh, you know, with Crosby there. 
but yeah, in, in, as far as you know, the the coverage and like the, the hype machine, I guess you know you have you have Phil Kessel's on the team, you have Cindy uh, Crosby, of course, and then yeah, Malcolm doesn't usually get too much, you know, like he doesn't get too much hype around him. But yeah, you know, like you said, he does score the big goals. He has I think 25 points in the in the in the playoffs so far. He's leading them. He's leading the playoffs with 25 points, but he scored a couple big goals and big moments for the Penguins. And, you know, he's definitely up there for a compromise probably talk. He should be at least. But, yeah, he's definitely in a little bit of a shadow casted by some of his other bigger name teammates. And, you know, I think he likes it. He, he, he likes to go, just do his business, and he likes to put the puck in the net. Yeah, and on that power play, and I mentioned this before, but there's nobody, there's no better uh, set of hands, so to speak, for what they do on the power play to put him up top and let him just set everything up. Uh, a great finisher, and really another guy that is another guy overshadowing him is uh, Ovechkin. Because if it wasn't for Ovechkin, Eric, we'd be talking about Malkin as one of the greatest shots in the league, and and definitely a, a Russian sniper. But I think he does that as well too. He's so smooth up there on the power play; it's really ridiculous. You just kind of follow him. He's so good at moving with the puck and moving without the puck, and just really just this. He's just so fluid when he's on the ice. It's kind of it's ridiculous. You know, and another story in this uh, Stanley Cup Finals is w- with the star players Crosby and Malkin kind of excluded. Pittsburgh, the difference with being Pittsburgh likes to spread out their ice time up front and especially on the back line. If you look at Nashville after game one, those t- big four defensemen, Subban, Yossi, Ellis, and Ekholm, each played about 23 minutes. Yossi went over 28 minutes. They didn't really give much time to defensemen five and six, Weber and Irwin, but do you like this strategy? Do you think the the Predators are just going to keep riding their big four? Or do you think they need to start being more in tune with the matchups? Because it seems like they would just roll those four against whoever. And it worked down the stretch. Yeah, I think I think that's going to be kind of how how they're running it. Because it, it's worked to get them here. You know, those are their those are their pillars on the blue line. And that's, the, that's who they're going to lean on in those situations. And I think they feel that whoever is out there, either, either one of those matchups is... is is good enough to compete whether or not they get out there with a Crosby on the ice or a fourth line on the ice. You know, they're going to be out there and they're going to feel like, okay, you know, we're not completely, we're not in the disadvantage with these two pairs out there. So they'll probably just continue it. When it comes to the Penguins, you know, they've had such problems with injuries on the blue line. You know, they came into the series without Crystal Tang already. So I feel like they're definitely, I've already adopted more of a, okay, let's let's spread out the minutes. You know, we're, we're already kind of shorthanded. We don't need any more people being overworked. So it's, it's kind of a, a polar opposite. You know, they, the, the Predators have their big heads out there still, and then the, the Penguins have kind of been forced to adapt on the fly with the, with an injury problem. Yeah, and if you look at Pittsburgh's blue line, especially without Latang, every defenseman played at least 16 minutes in that game. I'm looking at the Nashville forwards, the, the, the stars, so to speak, uh, Arvidsson and Forsberg, because... You could definitely make a case. The guys that are the leading defensemen for Pittsburgh, Ole Mata and Trevor Daly, are great players, but they aren't as good as the top defensemen that they've played in every round of the playoffs so far. The Keith and Seabrooks, the uh, Petrangelo and uh, Colton Pareko, even you know last round against Cam Fowler and some of, and some of those defensemen. This is the weakest top level defenseman that Nashville's played. Would you agree with that? Completely, because because of the injury fact. I mean, and then like you said, they were already coming in without their number one D, D guy in Latang, and and Nashville has gone through some pretty the heavyweights of the divisions. You know, coming through here, they need to start to um, capitalize and exploit on some of these favorable matchups. You know, these these not depth guys, but you know, the guys that aren't going to be out there against top level guys. They need to step up and you know score the big goal and get the momentum going for their team and you know 
if anything, just at least control some pressure and some uh, offensive zone time. Yeah, and they got to break through and get to Matt Murray, who, uh, by the way, Eric, I'm not really sure how to gauge Murray and how he's been playing. I thought at times he's looked great. But on the power play, giving up two goals, uh, I don't know. What do you think about Murray's performance in uh, in game one of this series? Is there a lot to like, or are there some questions you still have? You know, I think it's. I think you, you have to kind of – it, it might have been – there was parts where there was a down – down swings for him, but then there's parts where he, he made uh, saves and flurries, and you're like, okay, that's the Matt Murray we know, and then, but it all kind of falls back on his pedigree and what he has done for that team, you know, what he did last year for that team, what he did all regular season for him, so I think, you know, it's kind of like Pecorino's situation, it's like, okay, maybe you had you had a fluke, you had a soft, let a soft in or whatever, but you know where he's at, where he's coming from, and the mental capability and, pl- and play that he can have. So it's, it's kind of like, okay, probably you hope for, like you said, another blip on the radar for Murray. Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that that's the case as well. I think he's a great goaltender. He looked like he was a little banged up early in that game. And it's tough when your team isn't getting any shots on goal for an entire period. I mean, he, he was up against it for a lot of that game. So I think he put it best when he said, you know, we're lucky that we got the win, but we're definitely going to take it and, and going to move forward with it. So. Uh, we'll see what happens with Matt Murray, but we're, we're getting up for g- game two now, Eric. And I, I'm always this is always the game that excites me the most in in these series because y- the difference between a 2-0 deficit and a 1-1 series tie going back to the underdogs, the, the new home ice, is huge. This to me is I don't want to say must win, but this is of uber importance for this Nashville team to steal game two. Oh yeah, definitely. This is this is. As people like to always use throw it out at this time of year, it's pivotal a pivotal game for uh, the, the Predators because you know they if they can split it. Going back to Nashville is already going to it's already going to be a, a madhouse for them. I mean, if I've only heard good things about how the crowd in the arena has stepped up for this team and the whole city actually for this team during this run, and if they can come back with a one-one split, uh, that place is going to be even louder, even crazier. Um, but yeah, like you said, if you, it's, there's a big difference between a two-zero and a one-one, even if you're not coming back to a crazy house. You just have that little extra in the back of your head, like you get one more loss and we're facing a sweep. You know, where they already got a, a clinch on it. But so they definitely need to get this this second game. If they could, if they can, Nashville for game three is going to be uh, probably the loudest place on the planet. Well, yeah, I, uh, and you know, it's funny too. I had heard for, if the, if the series does go to six, Eric, I don't know if you heard this, but with the Country Music Awards being there around that same time, the plan, the rumored plan, is to put a giant uh, TV on Broadway Street. So you can only imagine the type of people that are going to be, and the, and the number of people that are going to be out watching this game. It's going to be nuts. I mean, the the ticket prices are in the in the, the seven eight thousand dollar range just to get in the door. It's kind of insane. It's uh, it, I kind of feel it has this feel of the uh, the twenty twelve Kings to me. How they're it's the whole, you know, they, their style of play is real similar. That they're on this kind of Cinderella Cinderella ish run. And the, the 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 city is really itching for it, really wants to see him succeed and, and bring a, a, the first cup home to to Nashville. Yeah, both eight seeds as well. I mean, the Kings a traditional eight seed, Nashville by and large the eight seed with the new format. Uh, it should be fun to watch. Well, let's look ahead down the road of this series, uh, Eric. How do you see this unwinding? First in Game Two, but then ultimately the rest of the Cup. Who do you see uh, hoisting the trophy when it's all said and done? Um, you know, I'm I'm pulling for Nashville. It's it's hard to root against Pittsburgh because you know they they have the Sidney Crosby's, Evgeny Malkin, everybody's been there before. 
they're going for it to be the first team to repeat since was like '97, '98. Um, yeah. But I think I think Nashville's gonna Nashville's gonna pull away with it. Um, I think they're gonna take Game Two. I don't see them losing in Nashville, and I think they're gonna take it in six. Oh, okay. Wow. Um, I think Nashville wins Game Two. I think this is gonna be a long series. I think. Oh, another guy I forgot to mention, James Neal, needs to really step it up. I think he can do just that. Uh, I think it's going to be 2-2 going back to Game 5. I like this going 7, but I can't really pick against the Penguins as much as I'd love to see Nashville win it. To me, Eric, that loss of Ryan Johansson is just too much. What he did for that team, uh, especially in the face-off circle, I think can't be understated. And it's hard for me to bet against Pittsburgh as much as I don't want them to win. The smart money is on Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, and now Mike Sullivan, who's proving that he can make some some tough decisions under fire as well. Uh, I think Pittsburgh is going to win this in seven, but I do think it's a coin flip. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's always tough. And when when I was looking at all the stuff, all the previews and stuff, and I'm just like, oh, you know, it's the heartstrings tugging at a Nashville team, and you know, there's plenty of reason to pull for them and and have that feeling, okay, and really believe, like, hey, they can do this, but. If there was just one thing that you could see on another piece of paper and just see Sidney Crosby's name, it's like, okay, well, yeah. there's that right away. It's, uh, that's, it's always tough to, to bet against him. And like you said, you know, they do have a, a coach that has has really guided them, and I think they're all behind him, whatever he does. And that's, that's huge for any kind, of, uh, any kind of run like this. It's really buy into whatever your coach is preaching. And it looks like he has all of his team buying in and then clicking on, on the right cylinder at the right time. Well, we know the environment's going to be crazy in Nashville, and Pittsburgh's brought it as well. Don't want to sell them short as well. But I do want to mention one other thing, not to get on the uh, you know sen- sentimental big picture side of things, but it is pretty cool, Eric, to see two, for the first time in Stanley Cup history, two American-born coaches going at it, and Peter Laviolette and Mike Sullivan. That's kind of good for this country in the, in the grand scheme of hockey. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I always love those little facts, you know, about you know the, the first American-born captain to lift the cup, or so many Americans on a team. And then I actually heard that, and I, I was kind of surprised with it, but um, that that was the first time, at least, you know. Um, but yeah, I it, you know you always like to get those little those little nuggets of information and be like, okay, there we go, we're doing something right, we're moving in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, well, it's good to see these are two coaches that have you know Sullivan c- coming up. Uh, through the minor league ranks, winning the cup last year has proven that he's got a good track record as well. Laviolette, who's done so much for so long and trying to get his first cup, I think it should be should be exciting. Uh, one last thing, Eric, though, I have to ask you, who do you have winning the Conn Smythe? Assuming it's Nashville, but you don't really have to have it be the team from the winning uh, player because it is the whole playoffs, but who do you think wins the Conn Smythe? Oh, man, I don't know. It's, it's, you know, it's tough to go against. The, the heavyweights, you know, like you know, Crosby will already have a couple of votes towards his, thrown his way because of Crosby, probably because he fought through, you know, the concussion problem. So he'll have a, he'll have a couple sentimental votes just because of his name. Um, but I like, I really like Gensel because he's he's got these big, he has these big <laughs> goals for the Penguins. Yeah. And um, he's it's it's funny because he's so young and it's a kid from Alabama and he's he's do he's doing it right. He's, he's working hard and he if he has another. Uh, Big goal or two in him during uh, this this final series here. He'll probably uh, he'll probably listen to Con Smythe and maybe even the Cup too. Yeah, Gensel becoming a Pittsburgh legend in his first postseason. It's funny how that works. Uh, just score some big goals and become a star. Getting, getting tossed on a line with uh, with Crosby will probably help. Anyway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's fair. You can ask Chris Kunitz that, but I think that's fair. 
if it is Nashville, it could be a defenseman. It could be Renee. It could be a forward, you know, like a Forsberg. If he steps up down the stretch, it should be fun to watch. And, hey, there's always the outside chance, the, the small sliver of hope that if this series doesn't live up to expectation, if no one really stands out, they could just give it to Eric Carlson for what he did up until the final. Yeah, yeah, that would be that would be a um, a at first, that's for sure. Yeah, well, all right, well, we'll, they could fly him in and uh, give, give it to him before the Stanley Cup is given out to you. Hey, why not? He played uh, eighty nine more minutes than the next closest going into the final, which is unbelievable considering he was doing it on basically one wheel. So, uh, if there ever was a time, maybe it is now. But in all seriousness, this should be a great Stanley Cup final. We're one game in already, waiting for more. Eric Roberts, thanks for joining the show. We'll have to uh, reconvene at some point when the dust has settled to see who's left victorious uh, after what should be an epic Stanley Cup final. Yeah, definitely, man. Thanks for having me on. It's always, always a pleasure. And that will do it for today's show. Big thanks to both our guests, Bradford Bruns and Eric Roberts, here on the Money Mitch Effect as they broke down some basketball, some hockey, a lot to watch as we kick into June and we get ready for championship season. There's Stanley Cup Final, NBA Finals, French Open. Can't forget about tennis this time of year, as well as the start of the baseball season. But big thanks to both our guests for breaking down the title runs in their respective sports. You can catch all the Money Mitch Effect episodes, as always, on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. Just search Money Mitch Effect and it pops right up. 86 episodes now in total. Just keep on going. That's what we do. Keep on keeping on, as Joe Durte says. And you can follow me on Twitter, MoneyMitchM21, for sports and other takes. We'll see. There will be a few more episodes uh, coming up in the near weeks that discuss these two series, as well as the French Open that I mentioned, baseball season, and some other big summer sporting events, as well as a few interviews that I hope to line up here in the near future. I am Mitch Michaels. This was the Money Mitch Effect. Thank you for listening, and until next time, please enjoy sports, especially this time of year.